Joe Sample is all that a keyboardist should be. Growing up with a musical influence of Creole, jazz, R&B, gospel, and soul, it was inevitable that his musical style would be a creative concoction of this musical diversity. He had made his mark in jazz and contemporary jazz with his band The Crusaders until his solo career took off. His keyboard abilities can take him down virtually any musical road, which is the mark of a great artist, but at the same time he frowns on the labeling of musical genres. He intentionally has erased any genre categories by blending his love of all music, from classical to creole. To Joe, good music is good music. For decades, Sample has been a first-call session player in the L.A. scene and has played with the best of the best. From Steely Dan to the Crusaders, Sample has left his musical stamp on hundreds of influential projects. His discography is massive, and discussion of it alone would take up an entire Inside Music Cast episode. At the young age of 74, Joe Sample is still creating great music and performing live gigs. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome a true musical icon, Joe Sample. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining us today. Okay, I'm very happy to be here with you guys. Hey, and Joe, also I wanted to let you know that uh, aside from uh, Eddie and me, uh, we've got uh, one of our correspondents, Don Brightup, on the phone with us today. Hey, Don, uh, say hello to Joe. Hi, Joe. Nice to be here, Hi. guys. How you doing, Don? Great. Good. Hey, well, listen, Joe, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, f- just for some information uh, perspectives, um, you know, let, let's start, let's get a little snapshot of, of how you began a- as a pianist. You know, they say that so many musicians and singers get their, uh, their start playing in, in church. I know personally that's where I started playing piano, uh, in church, uh, and at the age of 12. But, uh, and a lot of our past guests, you know, they, they get their start ch- playing in, in church also to, hone their talents because apparently as one person told us they said in church you don't get booed you just get amens you know (laughs) so uh did church i hear that church did have sort of an experience of uh at the beginning with your music musicianship is that correct well uh no 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 not exactly i I was my parents were uh founders of, of what what i describe as a creole Catholic Church. Gotcha. Uh, and it was in a, a neighborhood in, in, in Houston known as French Frenchtown, meaning mm. all of these migrants from Louisiana, they uh, mostly were mixed people of Louisiana uh-huh. who, who began to leave there after, after World War One. My parents came over to Houston somewhere around, the, I would say, 19 at least by 1923, and, and I say that because my, my oldest brother was born in 1924, mm-hmm. and that oldest brother was a professional musician. And when I was a, a kid in the war years, I, I remember uh, my living room uh, would suddenly be, be filled uh, with black men wearing uh, sailor suits, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were they were an uh, an all black naval uh, uh, band who who was stationed at Norfolk, Virginia, uh-huh. and this must have have been nineteen forty four. I was five years old, and I would look up, and there were all of these, you know, the black men playing the uh, the clarinet, the, the cornet, trombone, saxophone. And my oldest brother would would be sitting at the the, the, the piano, and he idol he idolized uh, Teddy Wilson, mm-hmm. and that was that was my first love of the piano. Watching my oldest brother play, I also wanted to play a a, a horn, also. Uh-huh. No, but 
I lived in a neighborhood that I was surrounded by uh, Protestant churches, black black uh, Protestant churches. Uh-huh. So I heard gospel music all day long. Right? Right. In, in fact, a vacant lot uh, across the street from, from my parents' home was the uh, the annual site of uh, of the Holy Roller people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After the war, they would they would put a tent there, and maybe this tent held um, a surplus tent. Maybe it, it it held forty to fifty people. Now you know it must have been hot as hell in there, <laughs> August, and they would and they would pull people 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 out of that that tent on the. Uh, the stretches, but it was a, a sanctified holy roller tent, and we the kids would uh, gather on on that side of the tent so we could hear the band playing better. Wherever the band was, we would gather to that side, mm-hmm. and we would we would dance around in, in the weeds, and and that would go on, on until October. So yes, I I had a rich. Uh, gospel in, environment and also um, a, a blues in, environment. Yeah, um, you know, um, you're talking about your parents uh, during that time as a kid. Were your parents musicians or singers at all, or in in church at all? Or? Well, my father was um, uh, a professional cook. He cooked for for, for General Persian staff in World War One. Wow! And after the war. He moved to New Orleans, and he became a cook on the, the Sunset Limited train. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not really sure how he met my mother. My mother's mother was was from New Orleans, and, and her father came from uh, uh, the Baldwin Franklin region of Louisiana, which is nowadays is um, uh, a sugarcane region. Uh, and they met, and they moved over. Uh, to Houston. Everybody used to leave Louisiana for a better life. Mm-hmm. Well, the racism there was very, very extreme. Uh, uh, and in the early 1920s, they discovered the oil uh, at Beaumont, Texas. Yeah, right. So that was a, a, a mass migration out of here. Wow. You know, you, you were... Um, you mentioned a little earlier that you immigrated. In a way, you moved over to Houston from um, uh, Louisiana. You know the the music that comes out of there, the the Zydeco, the the Creole music, it is so rich, and that had to have a profound influence on you. I remember going to Louisiana several times. I mean, I, I've been down to the to the Heritage Festival, and and actually met guys such as Buzu Chavis and and Bo Jacques and uh, and Chenier and and all those guys. And the music is just so rich. Um, when you were mo- when you had moved to Houston, Texas, um, is this the type of music that, in, of, other than the gospel and the blues, um, that was very prevalent uh, even in Houston for you as a kid, right? Well, the, uh, the very let's say first musician that, that I witnessed live was in the auditorium of the Catholic school mm-hmm. that I went to, and 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 in 1947, I for the first time saw the Clifton Chenier band. Did you really? It was Clifton Chenier and maybe a scrub board player or maybe a drummer. It was just two musicians. And we used to, he played a, a, a dance at my Catholic church for perhaps two times a, a month. <laughs> that was the first live music I had encountered other than the gospel groups I heard in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting on, on a 
what we didn't call is Zydeco then. It was known as Lala. Lala music. My, my mother would say to us, to, to me, my brother and my sister, they would say, okay, we want you kids to be good. Your uncle is going to babysit you. Uh, uh, your father and I are going to the La La dance to hear the La La band play the La La music. Right, and, yeah. And that was the beginning of Zydeco. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I grew up on that. And guess what I'm going to do since the end of, of September? What's that? I'm, I'm going to bring the Creole Joe band um, to the Blue Note in New York City. Are you really? I wow. have created a la-la band. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. I, I'm playing accordion. I bought an accordion. Did you? <laughs> when I moved back to, to, to Houston officially in 99, yeah. I was disappointed that the music um, had, 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 had taken on another shape. One of the shapes the blues was absolutely gone by the Zydeco band. There was nobody was doing blues anymore. Look at that, yeah. Well, Shania was a blues singer, yeah. and he would also sing these uh, Cajun songs, and he would also use the, uh, the French language. So, yes. yeah, I was, I was winged on this. So I got back, I asked my sister-in-law to just write stories of, of, about her lifetime and our lifetime, so we we did an album and it is is it it has been re- released in J- Japan and it is it is titled the Creole Joe Band. Wow! I'm in the, the process of writing the next album. Very it isn't cool. easy moving ten musicians around that no one has ever heard of. <laughs> but there is excitement. We're we're going to do the uh, the Blue Note in New York City. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, Annapolis to uh, what do they call it the uh, uh, the bar there, and then and then we're going to uh, Alexandria, uh, Virginia to work Annapolis, and then we're going down to Georgia to Beaufort, Georgia. Now this will be our first time performing in the U.S. Wow, wow. that's amazing! And Captain Shania's son is a part of the of the group C.J. Shania. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Parker Jr. is in, he's in the group. You got Ray Parker Jr. on this band? Ray Parker Jr. Oh my is God. playing guitar. Wow. My son is playing bass. <laughs> we have a drummer from New Orleans, uh, Weber, Raymond uh, Weber. We have a, um, um, a Japanese guy who has been living in, in New Orleans for 20 years now. So anyway, it's a it's a, a very rich, rich, rich group with the instruments and the, and the two two manager. That's that's there are at least eight people. Another keyboard artist in the band also. Wow. So it it isn't easy to to move eight people around. It's costly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it sounds like fun. Hey, uh, Joe, did did um you take piano lessons as a kid, or had you basically learned to play by ear? Well, I I did it both. Uh, at six years old, well, of course, at, at five years old, all the kids in the neighborhood were in the two-finger uh, boogie-woogie. And I remember there was a, 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 a young kid. He and I were born on the same day. His, his name uh, was Sugar Child Robinson. And they had, had shot 
uh, film footage of, of, of this kid when, when he was five years old playing boogie-woogie with his fists. And we, we, were, we were born on the same day. And, of course, when you went to the black movie house, you would, you would see the shorts, and they would always feature music and comics at the black film uh, theaters. And so I would see Sugar Child Robinson playing the piano, and I would go home, as all the other kids did, and we would learn how to play some, uh, the boogie-woogie. We, at six years old, I asked my mother to make it possible so that I had a, a piano teacher. And the wildest thing, now this is the end of the war, and I am, I am being introduced uh, to composers with all with German names. It, it was amazing to me. <laughs> after, after that great war, here I am learning the great compositions of the great Austrian or German composers. Wow. Of course, we got in, into Polish or uh, in Northern Europe, other uh, European composers also. But I, I love the classical music. I love the rhythm of jazz. I, I love the uh, rhythm of um, um, rhythm and blues. <laughs> Yet, I love the melodies of classical music. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Joe, I was, I was thinking about um, Wilton Felder, and, and you met him pretty early on, I'm, I'm assuming. Did you meet him in high school, or did you know him even earlier than that in your life? Well, Wilton Felder lived, we lived a, a block and a half from each other. Okay. And in our neighborhood, we were, you know, as kids, eight, nine years old, we would roam through the neighborhood. We knew kids, you know, two blocks over, three blocks over, this away, that away. And Wilton, I would see Wilton, and Wilton was always sitting on his front porch. <laughs> he was not allowed to come and, you know, and play with the other kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> Why? Because his father had his first uh, child, it was a, a son, and uh, Wilson's big big brother grew, grew up uh, with my big big brother. His his big brother also was a, a saxophone player, uh, and my older brother was uh, the piano player. So they played with each 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 other probably in the in the, the late thirties or nineteen forties. Huh. But I would see Wilson, and his father wanted a second son, and he kept trying to get the second son. So it ended up, he kept having another daughter, another daughter, another daughter, where it ended up, well, Wilton had 12 mamas. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't do anything. They were, Mama, Wilton standing on the grass. I said, Wilton, come on, man, play with us. He couldn't roam the neighborhood with all the other boys. <laughs> Eventually, I ran into Wilton. When I left uh, uh, the Catholic school, and I went to the, uh, the very first public school, there was a, a junior high called Eels Eel Smith. Mm-hmm. Now, now, my older brothers went there, and had gone there previously when it was known as Wheatley High School. Um, the Texans knew that that the Supreme Court decision, uh, separate but equal, was was coming down, and they knew that they were going to lose. 
So all of a sudden, uh, they built one one of the state of, of, of what high schools you could you could have anywhere. So then the the, uh, the old Whitley High School suddenly be, became uh, uh, the junior high school, uh, and I went there for the ninth grade, and that is where I met Wilson. By uh, the tenth grade, mm-hmm. um, I was at Wheatley High School. I was playing piano in the, the jazz orchestra and the clarinet in the marching band. And it ended up in the tenth grade that all the Crusaders were there, and and we were all in the jazz orchestra mm-hmm. or the uh, uh, the marching band. Right. And that's when I really got to know Wilton better than other. Uh, previous to that, Wilson Wilson was not a, a, allowed to roam the neighborhood with the other kids. <laughs> I got you. So Wilton was sort of in a ball and chain, poor guy, huh? <laughs> yeah, he was like he was like porcelain, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. You know, uh, you know, you attended. Uh, Texas Southern, as you say, uh, in, in Houston. And, uh, you know, we've uh, interviewed a couple um, Texas Southern University alumni, and you I know uh, you might have worked. Have you worked with Kirk Whalem? Oh, yes. yes yeah, he's, yes. A T, he's a TSU alumni. And, yes, um, yes I, I have worked with him. I have, I have not seen him recently. Yeah. Um, I know he did. Well, I did see him a year ago. He, okay. he did something at the university, yeah. which, by the way, now I'm I am known as an an, an artist in residence at Texas Southern University. Now. Well, that's great. Congratulations. That's great to come home, right? Yeah, that's good. Good. Well, um, but you never finished when you were in school there, and um, you know you never finished uh, TSU. And by that time, you had started uh, a band called the, the Swingers, and of course, Wilton and and uh, Nesbert were in the band. Tell us a little bit about. Um, Whose idea it was to to start the swingers and and what kind of stuff uh, were you doing? What were you listening to? Well, in high school, when uh, uh, when Hubert Laws, Wayne Henderson, Sticks Hooper, uh, Wilton Felder, myself, a bass player by, by the, the name of Henry Wilson Lala was his, his nickname. We formed a group that we patterned after the, the the modern jazz quartet, we called ourselves the modern jazz sextet. Mm-hmm. And that was just simply to play jazz at the campus. And, you know, we we would rehearse always at, at Wilton Felder's home. I don't I don't remember ever rehearsing at, at, at my home, or we rehearsed at, at Wayne Henderson's home. Mm-hmm. Although Sticks lived out at Galena Park, which that was a long ride away. Right. Uh, Sticks' father had an automobile. Wilton Wilton's father had an automobile. The rest of us, we we did, we did not have an automobile in the family. So it was it was always Sticks and Wilton who were picking up and moving around. Mm-hmm. So eventually, Sticks decided to create a band called the Swingsters. Now with the swingsters, this was to go out and and play dances at at, uh, at blues clubs. So and and basically the swingsters were also the crusaders. Uh, and then Aura and these singers uh, would hire us or hire a few of us to support them in their in their shows or or their gigs in, in the, uh, the southeast uh, Texas region. Mm-hmm. So we went out with uh, the T-Bone Walker, yeah. uh, uh, Lowell Folsom, 
But, but a number of artists, you know, I remember Big Walter, Little Walter, was a, of course, at Texas Southern, I had completed my third year. I was, I was, um, a ma- on my major was the Bachelor of Arts of the Piano. Mm-hmm. Now, that degree would not allow me to, 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 to move into the public school system as a qualified teacher. I got gotcha. you. I was not planning on becoming a, a school teacher. Mm-hmm. I was going all out. I had made up my mind at, at 15 years old that I was going to give it everything I got, even if it meant I could possibly fail at becoming a, a great jazz uh, pianist. Right. Now, at 15 years old, I made a decision because I had been fired from uh, two restaurants. One old man, a black man from, from my neighborhood, had me fired, <laughs> and he thought it was fun because when I went back to the high school the following day, everybody in the school was laughing at me that I had gotten fired. <laughs> and the old man was, was, was an evil man. I knew him from my neighborhood. But I, I, I thought, now isn't this, isn't this uh, terrible that an older black man would reach out to help a black youth mm-hmm. uh, fall? I just, I thought that was horrible. Now, a month later, I got called to another one of the restaurant chains, which was known as one's big love meal. My, <laughs> I'm supposed to start at four. I'm there early. I put on my work clothes. I'm sitting down with my punch-in card in my hand. The white boss man comes into the door and says, you lazy son of a gun. You think you're going to come here and sit on your butt? You're fired. I haven't even started working yet. I still had 10 minutes to go. But he said, well, you look like you're lazy anyway. And he fired me. So at 15 years old, I've been fired. One by an old, mean black man, and other by those stupid white men. So, so bad. I got on that bus and had to cross, cross town transfer downtown Houston and go back out to the fifth, fifth ward. I got on that bus and I said, you know what? I will never, ever again in my life have a boss man. Yeah. I got on that piano and I did not get get off. And I I realized at the age of fifteen by listening to a Gillespie record, Dizzy Gillespie recording, mm-hmm. I listened carefully to everybody in the band and I could hear which one of the musicians would would, would have a lifetime of music and I could hear which ones in that, that band would not be around their entire life because they were not that good. Yeah. And I made up my mind then, and I said, you know what? There is no, there's, there's no middle class in this game. Hmm. You have to be one of the best or you are on the bottom. Yeah. And that's how I structured my um, intentions to become a professional musician. After three years at Texas Southern University, I had completed all of my music courses, and suddenly, Austin, well, the government changed uh, all the curriculum, and 
I suddenly had to stop dealing with music and I had to, to start dealing in Texas history, Texas government, Texas law, Texas this, Texas that. Mm-hmm. And all I, I, I ever wanted to do was to simply get the hell out of, of Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a segregationist state. I was not going to live, live there and I didn't give a damn about Texas because right. Texas didn't give a damn about me. Mm-hmm. I was truly a second-class citizen here, oh, and I knew it. I knew that everything, if I lived there, that, that all the locals and the state governments were going to make sure that I, was, that I would always remain a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. So that's when we all packed up and went out to Los Angeles in, in, in 1958. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's take our first break, and I want to check out a classic Crusaders track whose title gives you a hint as to uh, its influence. And this is a track called Creole.
Joe, you ended up in L.A. and promptly changed your band name. Curious how that happened, and also curious whether Wayne Henderson was with you during that transition. Yes, all of us went, went, went out to Los Angeles. Wayne, Wilton Sticks, uh, Hubert, Hubert Laws, Henry uh, Wilson, the bassist. The first one we, that we actually lost eventually was Henry Wilson. He went on the road with uh, a very popular band. It, 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 it could have been Otis, what was his name? Uh, uh, a black guy who looked white. He had a big hit, hit record in the late 50s. Well, Lala left. Uh, and and we had become a very hot dance band in Southern California <clears throat> and ended up in a, a showroom in Las Vegas by 1960. In 61, we, we had organized a show which was a, a vocal group by, uh, known as the Titans and a female singer known as, as Mickey uh, Lynn. And we ended up in Las Vegas. Eventually... We left Las Vegas. We had a recording audition uh, at World Pacific Jazz, uh, and we went in uh, and set up. And after the third song, Dick Box said to us, fellas, relax. You are now a recording artist. Mm -hmm. And he asked us, do we have a name? And we didn't. And it was one of the girlfriends who, who said, you guys have always crusaded for jazz. Why don't you call yourselves the Jazz Crusaders? Uh, were, were there comparisons of uh, the Jazz Crusaders sound to um, other influences that had come before you? Well, we were, of course, influenced by the music of the black neighborhoods of, of, of Southeast Texas. We were also influenced by the uh, country swing music of these bands. We listened to that just as much as we did the blues stations. We had the blues stations here, and then we heard the uh, uh, country stations, but it, but it was Texas swing. It was quite uh -huh. different than uh, a lot of the Nashville uh, country music. And there were television shows that, that uh, featured the Texas swing bands. That had an influence on us also. Um, we worked bars. Um, we worked a lot of white bars who loved to dance to the black R&B music. Mm -hmm. and, and it basically was swing. Uh, jazz was not as, uh, as readily available. You had to go out and seek it and find it. But fortunately, in Houston, there were men here who were jazz lovers. One man in particular who, whose family had the best barbecue business in southeast Texas, the Lang family, this man had um, a collection of extended plate recordings and that of every jazz, every concept of, of jazz that was available in the early 50s. I had a two-track tape recorder. I would go over there and he, he would say, you have to come and hear this. I just bought this, I just bought that, and I would go there and uh, tape it. And one of those tapings, I got the MJQ, uh, and I recorded uh, Django. And I went back to Wheatley High School, and, and I had all, all the musicians in all the bands uh, hanging around listening to Django. We had never heard anything like that. Eventually, 
I was working with the blues singers, the, the dance bands. I also was working in restaurants. So I had money, and I used to go to a downtown uh, record shop. Now, this was the only place in the city that the races could mingle together. Interesting. In other words, I could go in there and put on the earphones that some white man had just taken off, and it wasn't against the law. So, wow. And I, and I used to listen to the records, and, and I would buy them. So... I was the one who was going out and and uh, and finding uh, musicians. I I found everyone, Cannonball, um, all the legends at that time. And I would bring them back to the Crusaders. Un unfortunately, my collection would be vanishing at the same time. People <laughs> would take it, or they were going, and I made mistakes by by allowing people to take my recording home to listen. But that that was a that was just downright silly, <laughs> but uh, so we got to, we we got to hear jazz. And another one of the other things that uh, helped us was known as short wave radio. Uh -huh. I I could get up uh, uh, to Chicago and Pittsburgh, yep. and uh, and some and sometimes up to Philadelphia. Uh, but we were fascinated, and we would get together at Wilson Felder's home, and we would have. Uh, listening uh, sessions, and we would listen and, and listen. We, we would we would be there two hours, three hours, and then we would go down and, and we would start, you know, not rehearsing necessary, but but having fun, learning how to play jazz, and that's where it all started in Wilton Felder's mother's her living room. Hmm. Wow! And that was the beginning of it, and that was always uh, a jam session at some. <laughs> At, at some restaurant bar around the city, and and the word was spread around Houston that the jam sessions now were being held at the club Tropicana or at the so-and-so restaurant. All the black, the white, and Mexican musicians would all go there, and we would all get together. This was we we never had an opportunity to. You know, to play with the Mexican musicians or the white musicians, because eventually the, the the police would come in and say, "You're race mixing. This is against the law. Oh, Stop it and don't do it." Uh. So, so the police would break it up. But then we would we would find another bar rest of restaurant to to go to and to have a a jam session. The jam sessions were the biggest thing of our, of our lives. That was usually every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, at at the city auditoriums of what was of uh, jazz at the Philharmonic came in, and uh, the Gillespie Big Band came in to the black uh, club. That same club, I would be I would be in a big band there for, with the high school uh, director's big band, Sammy Harris. There was Conrad Johnson, so we had a, a lot of, of opportunities to learn a lot of things. This is, we're, we're from Southeast Texas, so it is very, 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 very natural for us to blend all of music with, with gospel, blues, and jazz. Yeah. Now, other musicians, once out in L.A., they, they may have found that offensive, because we, we, we found it to be the most natural <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> of course, <laughs> to yeah. Separate it. 
it's all they all come from the same place. Yeah. And I remember meeting musicians who frowned on that. They it had to it had to be pure jazz. And I don't give a damn about pure jazz. Yeah. I was given a gift of being able to feel and interpret all forms of African American music, American music, and was and and was studying uh, European music, and that was the Caribbean was right at at the back door. So I I grew up in a, a, a very wonderful place, and in going out to L.A., I, I encountered musicians who who came from all, all over the United States, and and they all had different concepts of of, of doing things. Or playing things, and a lot of them. Well, when the Crusaders, we we became funkier. Um, a lot of guys would look at me and say, "Oh, you guys are playing that rock and roll." And I said, "No, no, no. That's <laughs> not rock and roll. That's rhythm and blues. Right. You ought to learn what the difference is." Yep. I would get angered at that. <laughs> Do you want to talk a bit, Joe, about uh, making your first Jazz Crusaders record, Freedom Sounds, in 1961? To everyone's shock, especially to me, um, the Freedom Song was the first song I, I had ever written that was ever recorded. It was also the title of uh, the Crusaders' very, very first recording. Uh, the, the Freedom Sound was released as a single in 1961. And it went to the top of the. It, it, it went into the top forty of the um, American top forty charts, mm -hmm. and it reached position seventeen. So everybody was shocked. The other musicians were shocked. How did these guys pull that off? What was so? A lot of musicians did not like us. We the first recording we made just shot to the top of. The jazz shorts. It's amazing. And uh, and 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 the musicians would say, "Well, that ain't jazz." They said, "Well, it's uh, it's this Gulf Coast jazz. It ain't <laughs> East Coast. It ain't West Coast jazz. <laughs> it's Gulf Coast jazz." Yeah. They said we had a particular feeling. What was it? I don't know why in the world that when we played, the energy just reached out and grabbed people, and they. They became obsessed with the, the, the feeling and and the melodic structure of the, of the Crusaders' music yeah. or the jazz Crusaders' music. Then, right, right. Hey, uh, I knew the thing that was if 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 was going to do a lot of, of of damage with the band was we never had a bass player. Wilson Felder uh, in the mid '60s began playing a Fender bass so that he could show the bass players what to play. Eventually, by the late 60s, Wilson was playing bass on Crusaders records, and he overdubbed his saxophone. Wow. And I knew eventually that was going to create a nightmare because to go out and perform and not really have a bass player who really, really felt all the music was a major problem. Now, there were acoustic bass players who played well with the Crusaders. The, the very first one was Jimmy Bond, um, uh, Leroy Vinegar. There was Muck Montgomery, uh, and that was Buster Williams. Uh, Buster Williams wanted to live, and his dream was to become a New York jazz musician, and it got to a point 
Well, we couldn't use Buster anymore. He was he wanted to be with uh, well, he was with Herbie Hancock and and all of the leading musicians of New York. Uh, and then at the end of the '60s, when jazz suddenly made a major major turn, and that turn started in '63, I noticed it then, and I said, well, wherever jazz goes, and and, and jazz was was headed into free jazz and Event God, and for five years I've watched it, and I had to make a decision: was I going there? I knew that there was no way I was going to to stop doing what I had been doing and hoping to do since I was five years old. To suddenly, in my late twenties, to become a free jazz musician, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just said, "No, I want. I I know what I love in music. I really don't give a damn." What the New York musicians are, are doing? Yeah, I'm I'm staying on my course because I think I'm doing. I I know I am doing exactly what the Lord had intended for me to do. Yeah. And, and, and I would I would never I, I never could allow myself to become distracted because all the other musicians were in headed in that direction. And as I said, one of the most positive things that I and the Crusaders did. Whenever we saw all the musicians running in, in one direction, we ran to the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, uh, let's pause for a second and check out the Crusaders' classic track, Freedom Sound, from today's guest, Joe Sample. Hey, Joe, um, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, and we're going to talk about your first true solo album, which was released on MCA in 78, Rainbow Seeker. And it, it was uh, the first of, I think, 20 solo albums that you recorded. And, you know, this is a fantastic album. It, you know, it had tracks such as Rainbow Seeker, you know, Wildest Dreams with uh, Eric Gale on guitar, uh, Stops Along the Way, Melodies of Love. I mean, every track is, is just excellent. And, and what prompted the idea of your first solo album? I mean, what did you want to do that you couldn't have done with the Crusaders? Well, the Crusaders really had nothing uh, to do with it. And I had re- recorded an album 
1968 in, 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 in Stockholm with a, a Swedish record, record label. And in the early the, the 70s, I, I did an album with, uh, with Shelly Mann and Ray Brown. And both of those albums were titled something like The Three or We Three. And they are, are wonderful records. I had a, a lot of resistance from coming from uh, management and the record company. We were, we were all signed to ABC Records, but we had personal uh, managers also. And uh, I had a very difficult time in telling people that, hey, you know, um, I was born. When I was born, there was nothing stamped on my butt saying property of the Crusaders. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? And since I was five years old, my dream has been the acoustic piano. That's a whole other story. I was happy when the electric piano came in because most pianos I encountered, I call them dog du jour. <laughs> they were horrible. They were so horrible that in 68, I, I told the jazz crusaders, we're not going, I'm not going out of here anymore, playing in these jazz clubs and running into pianos that are Im impossible to play. That simply means to me, I'm wasting my life and my time. I can think of something else better to do. Thank God the Fender Rhodes came along that made it possible for, for me to, to have a desire now to, to want to go out and perform. I also had a strong feeling like, is the world going to tell me that my role is simply I'm supposed to lay in the background and accompany horn players, accompany singers. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to play some damn melodies. I'm going <laughs> to get out of my way. I'm coming out shooting. I've got a God-given right to play a melody. That's right. Yeah. That's where it all came from. So finally they agreed, and, and, and that was Rainbow Seeker. I recorded Rainbow Seeker twice because when I first went in, it was with Popwell and, and uh, Sticks. No one could feel that music. There were tens of thousands of dollars that were lost because they didn't understand it, nor could they feel it. Yeah. My son is in New York now, and he's trying to put together, and he's going to, to bring his, his group into the late-night shows at the Blue Note. And he called me, and, and he said, Dad, I finally see what, what, what you were always talking about. I've got all these guys together, and know what? Nobody can feel my music. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to get somebody to feel what you're feeling is the nightmare. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Hey, Joe, I've got a question. You you talked about the Fender Roads, and, and right around that time, it was new sound. I mean, gee whiz, Dave Grusin, Bob James, Herbie, everybody was experimenting with the Roads. But when you started embracing the Roads, um, can you re tell us about the first time that you actually touched a Fender Roads and fell in love with it? When was the first time? Well, I knew that it had come out. I had played the world as a previously in the 60s on some Jazz Crusaders records. One Crusaders records when we um, I recorded in 1970, uh, 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 put it where you wanted. That was a Wurlitzer. In the beginning, I steered away from the Fender Rhodes. George Rhodes uh, called me and, and and asked me to come out. What town was he in? Uh, he was out there at Disney. Mm -hmm. 
uh, land. Anaheim. And I went out to his, his operation, and I told him, your fender rose is, is simply not strong enough to accept the attack by a pianist. And he said that Joe Zawinu had told him the same thing. And he said, I'm going to call you back out here in a month or so and let you try the new uh, roads that has been beefed up. Because Joe Zawinu and I, when we sat on them in the beginning, we would break all the tuning times. <laughs> I couldn't play it. Or they, or they had other uh, problems in it. So I went back out there, and sure enough, the Fender Rhodes could now withstand the attack of a person who's been playing piano in a serious manner all his, his life. Mm-hmm. And I bought one, he gave me one. And now for the first time, I can go back on the road, which we stopped traveling for uh, two years to yeah. three years or so. Right. And I remember one of the first gigs was in Oakland in, in 1970. Uh, I had a Wurlitzer. But a Wurlitzer was not a very, very good piano to be as sensitive as I wanted to be with um, harmonies and jazz harmonies. So probably in 72, I started uh, going on a road using uh, a Fender Rhodes, and we had the, the cases of uh, the flight cases and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked really, really well. Um, but in 76, I'm saying, okay, I love the rose and this and that, but the piano has vanished. It's gone. There's no more piano. So that's when I fought to do Rainbow Seeker. Yeah. And when it came out and Carmel followed, I think I pulled all the other musicians to go back to acoustic piano. Yeah. There were only two guys uh, playing acoustic piano regularly, which was McCoy Tyner and, uh, and Keith Jarrett. So I wanted to play my music on the Fender Rose, and, of course, I recorded Rainbow Seeker twice, then in into Carmel, and I, I believe that the Carmel record was, was the most exciting recording I had done and that the musicians, Abraham Laboreal, Stick Super, and, and the drummer who was with Sea Wind then came in and recorded, and that was one of my proudest recordings I had, had ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, That was with Bob Wilson on drums. Bob Wilson, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey guys, let's take one more break, and let's go all the way back to 1978 and check out the title track from Joe's solo record called Rainbow Seeker. This is from our guest today, Joe Sample, on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, uh, Joe, we've got a series or, you know, a few questions here that will have some interest uh, to our listeners at Inside Music Cast. And they relate to your experience as, you know, a major A-list player on the West Coast music scene and some key projects you played on. Yeah, Joe, I wanted to uh, specifically ask you about the Michael Franks album, Sleeping Gypsy, that he made for Warner in 77. I know you played on more than one of his records, but... uh, I've always loved that record, and I've always appreciated uh, keyboard players who uh, make a piano sometimes feel like a percussion instrument. Uh, And you, although you've got all the jazz harmony under your hands and you're capable of really lyrical stuff, you can also really put the sting on the roads uh, or the piano. Um, Did you ever play any drums, and uh, what do you remember of making those Michael Franks records? Well, uh, first of all, the piano is a drum. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's the greatest drum that was ever invented. What was the first thing? Was, you know, the shuffling yeah. of the left hand or both of the hands in the boogie woogie. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the bar. When they had the big, big bands, the piano players said, don't worry. I'll, I'll I'll get you people up dancing also. A good boogie-woogie piano player could get a crowd dancing just as intensely mm-hmm. as a, a big band could. So, and I, I like to, to tell drummers, my drum is a lot better than your drums. Not only can I get people up dancing, but I can play them a melody at the same time. That's and amazing. I hear the melody, and I'm thinking, 
Now, there's no way that I'm going to strum a piano. <laughs> I'm not going to try to imitate this guitar strum along. And I said, and I know, like Tommy, just sit back, and I could sit there and say, Joe, I brought you here to start some shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I started coming up with some, uh, some rhythm and little melodic uh, statements in between his, 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 his lines. I led the way, and eventually all the musicians joined and came in. And, and that was one, one of the most uh, unique records I have, have ever been in, involved with. And I believe that, that in the Los Angeles circuit of musicians, or studio musicians, after that record was released, I got compliments from every single musician in Los Angeles. They all would come and say that was a very, very that that, that concept was a very, very unique uh, uh, concept that we came up with. And I would listen to it, and I was a man. I thought I played my ass off. Mm-hmm. We're running a little short on time, but in in uh, in. Kind of continuing on, we, we just want to mention a few things. You know, we were talking about the Michael Franks album, how you laid down some tracks with him, but you've also had the opportunity to play with guys like and work for Quincy Jones. And, and, and you know, you played on uh, Let's Get It On, Marvin Gaye, Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark, you know, the, uh, Kenny Burrell, Klaus Ogerman. And we want to just sort of wrap things up here today by talking a little bit about uh, Steely Dan and the Asia album in 1977. And all three of us here, Eddie, Don, and myself, we're all big uh, fans of Steely. And as a matter of fact, Don has written a book about Asia and that's available on, on paperback, and maybe we can talk more about that in a bit. But you, you played on more than one Steely Dan album, though. But Becker and Fagan were, were legendary, obviously, for their, their high standards, and some would call it perfectionism in the studio. How specific were they with the rhythm section parts? I mean, for example, did you invent that clav part on, the, on Black Cow? How did that all come together? Uh, uh, Donald Fagan came up with all of of the piano parts. Mm-hmm. He had the basic uh, part uh, written out. Uh, at, at, at some point, I would add whatever he liked. He would allow me to, to add things, but the, uh-huh. but the basic, basic piano part always came from Donald. Donald uh, wanted another pianist to play the parts because he, he wasn't that precise with his, his playing. Now, what happened with Steely Dan, and I was there, uh, and I witnessed it, and I played piano on almost every damn thing that they released. But when I played something, that didn't mean I was going to be on the released uh, record. Right. What I began to notice, and uh, Steely Dan always hired um, a session leader. Mm -hmm. And I sat there... And I took orders from either Steely Dan, you know, all of them, off, off from the session leader. Now, what I began to notice was that Steely Dan knew when their music was right. It was just what they wanted. And they knew when it wasn't right. And they knew that wasn't exactly what they wanted. The problem was... They didn't know why it was right, or they didn't know why it was wrong. 
I was sitting there knowing why it was wrong, but I could never open my mouth. And they never asked me to open my mouth. <laughs> and at producer's workshop, you could never get in a, in a position to go behind the board or in front of the speakers so you could clearly hear what was going on. The only place that I could stand was on the floor in, in the control booth and directly over my head were two monster speakers. So I was being bombarded with kick drum and bass. So I didn't hear shit. And I'd go to the movie theater next door and get a box of popcorn. I would stand in the parking lot and uh, chat. Uh-huh. And one of them made a comment once that I never showed interest in my comment. Well, well, you never asked me about my interest. And they just didn't know why it was wrong. They didn't know why it was right. So they just kept bringing in another band, another band. They was looked like, man, okay, let's throw this band against the wall. Well, why don't we try using him with this guy? Yeah. And I would be in there and say, man, you're asking so-and-so to play that? He doesn't know how to play like that. I saw the mistakes that were being made. But like I said, I didn't feel like I could open my mouth and say shit. So I didn't. <laughs> Very interesting. I mean, but, I mean, you know, aside from those experiences, I, I, did, you, did you have some good experiences playing with those guys? I mean, was it, was it at times when, when you were in the studio with them, was it musically fulfilling? Well, of course it was. Yeah. One time I just said, I'll say one time I just said, fuck it. We've been playing this thing over and over. The problem is, you guys, nobody is playing rhythm. Yeah. And I said, there's a clavinet sitting there. I'm going to go and play the clavinet. And they all looked at me, and I just started playing it right away. We had a take. <laughs> Holy cow, that's awesome. And, but was it the take that ended up on the on the record? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, so, good. <laughs> I said, what was it, what was it, the group, what was it? Come and get your loving. Uh-huh. you remember that song? I do remember that song. I'm trying to remember who did it. It was the, the, the brothers, the two Indians, Red, Red Bone. That's Red right. Bone. Come and yeah, get your love. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Come, come and get your love. So now, it's a noon session, and they tell me, we don't want you to put piano on until we get all the music on. The man, from noon to six, they are arguing. From six to midnight, they are arguing. Oh, my gosh. From midnight to 6 a.m., they are still arguing. And I finally said, I've been in here for 18 hours. I'm going to get on the piano now and play, or y'all get somebody else. They let me in on the piano, and guess what? There it was. It was your hit. Nobody plays rhythm. Interesting. I know how to play rhythm. Uh-huh. Most jazz critics don't like me because they say rhythm playing ain't shit. Mm-hmm. Rhythm playing <laughs> is everything. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That is so amazing. Wow. Says, oh, man, this guy is not a jazz player. He plays just, just because you are a rhythm player. That doesn't make you a jazz player. Well, man, listen to Fast Waller's shit. <laughs> oh, listen, listen to Art Taylor when he played stride, stride piano with a band. Of course, rhythm is everything. Rhythm and swing is the, the rhythm of America. 
Yeah. Where did that come from? That came from West Africa, and, and it is a sense of the West Africa. It, it, is, it is from the West African sense of three. I, I was in a studio uh, with Master Kayla, and he came in there with, with four percussionists. Remember, we were at, at, at Hollywood Sound, and this is when it dawned on me. I wanted eight notes. And man, no matter what you did, these African percussionists always ended up in some form of three. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know what an eighth note is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, "Well, that there it is." And then when you start listening to swing, listen to Gene Krupa, man. Listen to it's that West African sense, the West mm-hmm. African sense of sense. Yeah. That's the American gift to the world. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey Joe, you know, you've we could, you know, we could go on and on. We, we actually have to do probably another another part part 2 with with Joe Sample because there is so much you need to we need to cover with you and and uh, like you said at the very beginning of the interview that you'll be on the road. Uh you're doing something interesting this later on this year with uh the Joe the Creole Joe band and you're taking that to New York City later on this year. Um be in touch with us with that. Uh, we want to know when uh when that takes off a little bit because we want to let our Listeners know about that. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just stay in touch with uh, with Pat Rain's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely do that. And, uh, Joe, thanks again for your time. And we also want to thank uh, correspondent Don Bright up in Los Angeles. Thanks, Don. You bet, guys, anytime. Nice to meet you, Joe. Okay, man. My pleasure. All Joe, right. take care, and we will uh, we'll stay in touch and talk to you soon, all right? Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Joe Sample for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brydup for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.